2 Samuel chapter 15. As I've said uh, many times in these last few months, um, we're in this series um, primarily because as we're focusing on this, this vision that God has for us as a church, you as a sending church in the coastlands, we also want to, as we're praying for places like London, we also want to be thinking about our own selves, our own souls, and what it is that God wants to do in us. It can very often be the case where we get busy doing all this church stuff that inwardly, ourselves, we might be coming to a very unhealthy or perhaps even sinful place, and God wants both our vision for what he wants to do in the world to be healthy and our own souls and our choices to be good, right, and healthy. And so we're talking about that as we look at the life of King David and some of the other kings looking at character, choices, and the types of people we will become. And now we come towards the later years of King David's life. We have seen high highs and low lows. And here we come to 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 13 to 31. And I've titled this sermon, Surrender as a Way of Life. Let's read the text, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 13 through 31. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise. And let us flee, for otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us while I go where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or life, there also your servant will be. Therefore David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. So Ittai the Gittite passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. While all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Sadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? 
Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel as foolishness. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come humbly to your word. And we ask this morning that we would be changed by your word. And so we invite your Holy Spirit now to teach us about the way of surrender. Lord, we confess right now, openly and honestly, our tendency is to resist. Our tendency this morning is to say, our will be done, not yours. But God, would you open our eyes to see that it is your will that must be done in our lives for your glory and for our good. And so we pray today that you would overcome our resistance to whatever it is you want to do in our lives, that you would bring us to a place of sweet surrender. Would you do this, Lord? And if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray that they would see who you are, know who you are, and believe this day and be saved. We ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Throughout her months in Nazi concentration camps, Corrie Ten Boom saw terror, torture, and sickness. She lived in those camps to see stealing, betrayal, and even worse among the prisoners she lived with. And yet, in the midst of that, miraculously, she also saw care. She also saw people make sacrifices. She also saw love. And it was there, she said, that she experienced God like never before. She experienced a nearness to Him that gave her a joy that she hoped would never change. She wrote a book on it, and it's called, I Was was a Prisoner yet I was free. What an amazing statement. I was a prisoner, and yet I was free. For she gave herself to God in the midst of her many trials, and as she did, she experienced what she would spend the rest of her life talking about. That surrender to God is a way of life. Surrender to God is the way of true freedom. Today we come to a story that on the surface, much like Corey Ten Boom's life, it may look like a defeat. And yet beneath the surface, there is victory. Now, unlike Corey Ten Boom, however, King David's trials that he's experiencing here in this chapter were due in part to the consequences of his own choices. And yet even there, he relearned the true source of his strength. He learned the power of surrender. He learned in this season of his life to pray, Lord, your will be done. 
And so this story teaches us what it looks like to surrender, even in, and especially in, the most difficult seasons, where things seem to be uh, against you, where you seem to be surrounded perhaps even by enemies or the consequences of your own choices. Because after all, on a daily basis, it could mean you and I facing the evil of an enemy or even the own, our dysfunction of our own family. I mean, let, let's, let's be real. Let's be honest. Some of the challenges that we face are amongst our own friends and family. And maybe you were reminded of that over Thanksgiving. You're like, wow, it's good to see everybody. Wow, we're really dysfunctional. I mean, the rest of you are like, no, my family's perfect. God bless you. For the rest of us, it's a little dysfunctional. And in that, we can actually relate to David. I mean, David have it, had it worse. I mean, think about it. Like, in David's life amongst his family, what did we find? Incest, rape, domestic violence, rebellion, political upheaval, and intentional homicide. Pretty bad. And yet, it was within this brokenness that David discovered healing in a fresh way. And it's even in the midst of our brokenness that if we learn the way of surrender, you and I can experience incredible healing by the hand of God. In this story, Israel's great King David, he appears to be weak. For in this story, if, if you look at the scene, he, along with many others, at this point in time, they are now forced out of Jerusalem into the wilderness. David's like, not again. I was in the wilderness, then I'm in the palace, and now I'm being pushed out. David's own son a young man named Absalom was bitter against his father and he stole the hearts of the people of Israel and now Absalom has stolen the throne. And here in this passage, David is forced out of his own kingdom and we see him with all these others. They're just weeping on their way out of the city. I mean, you can just picture it. They're crossing the river. They're going up into the wilderness. Their king, David, is weeping. He's been forced out. Everybody else with him is weeping. And on the surface, it looks like a defeat. And yet beneath the surface, there is victory. For what follows in this chapter and in the remaining chapters, if you read them on your own, are all these different encounters that David has with both friend and foe, supporters and usurpers. And to each one of them, notice, David displays godly virtues like forgiveness. David displays patience and David displays justice. And so here we learn valuable lessons about surrender as a way of life. So whether we're facing our own sins or the sins of others, we can all experience God's power and we can all display godly responses. The key is surrender. Listen, surrender will change everything about your life. How you face trials, how you face success, how you respond when you're betrayed, or how you respond to people who are loyal to you, surrender will change everything. Now, I am not suggesting this morning that you and I surrender to our circumstances. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying that you and I must surrender to the God who is above our circumstances. Completely different. I'm not just saying, well, everything's bad. Just I'm going I'm, I'm to give myself over to these circumstances. Oh, no. I am saying that we must surrender our lives, all that is entailed in our lives, to the God who is above our circumstances. 
And that's what David models here. David shows us four ways we can live a surrendered life to God. And the first, if we're going to live a life surrendered to God, we must learn to look for God's grace. We need to look around our lives. We need to look around our circumstances. Though they may be bad, we need to look for evidences of God's grace. Notice in verses 19 through 23, we note that David was not alone. In the midst of this sad procession, David discovers unlikely allies. And there are two reasons that David should see this as an evidence of grace. Number one, the fact that he even has friends in the midst of a trial is a portrait of God's grace, is it not? That's amazing. I mean, I think you and I often take for granted the people around us. They may not be the people you had in mind that you wanted beside you in a time of trial, but nonetheless, they are there. And even when you're going through it, and even though you may experience a time of suffering or your plans have not worked out the way that you thought, the fact that there are other brothers and sisters around you is nothing but the sheer grace of God. And that is reason for us to get on our knees today and thank God from the bottom of our hearts that we even know another Christian. We should just say, this is God's grace. This morning, you may have just woken up and just thinking everything is going wrong. But look, there are brothers and sisters around you who love you. They're here to pray for you and may even do so in this service. Thank God for that, lest you lose heart. David was not alone. But even as he's weeping, kicked out of his own city, he has just lost his throne. He is not alone. He had friends in the midst of trial, and that is God's grace. But there's a second reason that David should have seen the events in his life as an evidence of God's grace. Some of those friends, listen, were natural enemies. Notice in this chapter, some of the characters listed here are from the Philistine camp. Now, remember, the Philistines are the historic enemy of Israel. I mean, David began his career by killing Philistines. Now he's converting them. That's amazing. Ittai from Gath. I love that. Ittai. It's a good name. Name your next child that. It'll go over well. Ittai is saying, David, we want to go with you. And David's like, no, go back to your country. And Ittai's like, no, I am going with you. And notice... That Ittai makes a reference to God, and it seems as though many of these, these Philistines who had been converted, they learned about God. They learned about God's character through the life of David. Now, that is encouraging. Listen, there are times, I go here often, there are times when we get so discouraged and we just think, there is no fruit in my life. Nobody's ever been blessed by me. Nobody's ever seen, you know, the characteristics of, of God through my life. You know, we could just get this, like, tunnel vision. And when we're in tough seasons of life, it's hard for us to admit that there could be any good. It's as though we just get, like, tunnel vision, and we don't see evidences of God's grace. And yet we must look around us. We must look around us because, listen, if Satan can't blind you to the sin in your life... He will blind you to the fruit in your life. That's one of his strategies. Make no mistake. On the one hand, Satan wants to blind you to your sin so that you just turn away from God and go down a destructive path and we must be aware of Satan's lies. But on the other hand, if Satan can't win there, this is where he will try to defeat you. He will try to blind you to the fruit in your life. 
He will try to blind you to any encouraging evidence of God's grace in your life. And that's why I think as a community, as a church, we all come into play. Because there are people that may be sitting next to you this morning who right now may be blind to God's grace in their life. And maybe today you and I must take the opportunity to go to other people in their lives and say, look, I just want to thank you today for all the ways in which you have blessed me. I want to thank you today for how you have taught me about Jesus Christ. I want to thank you today for all the times that you prayed for me. I mean, have you ever been encouraged in a a surprising way by somebody who came up to you and said, hey, thank you so much for being there for me. And you're like, I was there for you? You're like, yeah. You're like, oh, awesome. Yes, uh, totally. I was there for you. Yep. I remember that. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it so encouraging when somebody comes up to you? It could have been like years later and said, hey, one time you shared a scripture with me and it was life-changing. You're like, oh, wow, God used me. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of encouragement. And I think you do as well. And so we need to take the initiative as, as a church and just come around like, like Ittai saying, oh no, David, I, I'm coming with you because I've learned about God from you. What a beautiful picture of the church here that, that we come around, even though naturally we're, we're, we might be enemies through Jesus Christ, we're brought together and we can do life together and we can encourage one another. We can help each other look around at God's grace in our lives. And this encourages our hearts to surrender. And it's in those seasons where it is tough, where we need to to flex this muscle the most. We need to stop and we need to, I don't care what it takes, like write it down on your, your iPhone or a piece of paper or whatever it is, write down even today, like what are evidences of God's grace in my life? I'm saved, hallelujah. That's amazing, write that down 20 times. And then just look around all the gifts that God has given you. Look at that, cherish the encouragements that you see and help others see them as well. We need to look for God's grace. That's a part of how we surrender to God. We look around and say, okay, it might be bad, but God, there's still grace in my life. David, as he's weeping across the book, Kidron, he could look around and say, oh, these people are with me. I'm not alone. Even my natural enemies, they're coming with me. They've learned about God. I mean, in the midst of all this, this, this difficult circumstances, look at the evidence of grace. You know what I think of? I think of the apostle Paul when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians? It's crazy. It's like Christians gone wild, right? Like anything that could have ever gone wrong with a church went wrong in the church in Corinth. He has to rebuke them about getting drunk and, you know, adultery and lying and cheating and suing each other. There's all these problems in the church. And yet, you know how Paul starts out his letter? He says, I thank God for you. I thank God for you. I thank God for the grace that he has shown you in his life. Now I'm going to correct you for 14 chapters. That's necessary. But I just want to begin by thanking God for the grace that I see in your life. It might be easy just to focus on the negative things happening in life or even in the church community. But dear brother and sister, sit down today, write a list, do whatever you got to do and just say, I see the grace of God here. It's encouraging to our hearts. It helps us to surrender and cherish what you do see. Cherish it. Now, that is not all. What about the bad things? You might say, okay, that's good, but David was still in a bad situation, and you would be right to say that. We must handle 
the trials of life. We need to face the consequences of our own faults like David did, as well as the consequences of choices of other people around us. To do this, however, requires the second thing that is a part of the way of surrender, and that is we must trust in God's sovereignty. David had to learn, like you and I must, to trust in God's sovereignty. We are not ultimately in control. You know, it's been said that suffering teaches us that we lose control at times. But really, when you read the Bible, suffering shows us that we were never in control in the first place. We do not control as much as we think. And few things teach us that like trials. Notice in verses 24 through 26, when David is approached by the priests, Zadok and the others, he openly expresses trust in God for the future. And it is, a, it is a beautiful response. Look at verse 25. David says, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. See, David is not surrendering to his circumstances. He is surrendering to the God who is sovereign over them. You and I need to be reminded of this constantly. Our hearts must recognize that even the trials we face, they are not beyond the reach of God's care. We're tempted to think that things happen and we just, oh gosh, Lord, this is too hard for you. Or I don't know how you can bring good out of this. I just don't see it. And yet it's in those moments we need to remember words found in places like Romans 8. Many of us know this verse, but it is so good. Do not let the familiarity of Romans 8 cause the truth of it to lose its power in your heart. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Did he say some things? God's like, oh yeah, I'm going to work a few things in your life. Oh, those other things, I don't know what to do with those. It doesn't say that. It says God works all things together for good. This is an incredible statement. That means that David, when he's getting kicked out of his own city by his own son, that he can say somehow, someway, God, you're going to orchestrate this for your glory. Somehow, someway, God, your will will be done. Even though I don't see it, I don't know the beginning from the end. Only you, oh God, only you know that. But somehow, someway, I trust right now in your sovereignty. Charles Spurgeon once said that God's sovereignty is like a soft pillow for a weary heart. And it may be this morning that that's where you and I need to lay down and rest. We just need to trust in the sovereignty of God. I remember uh, reading years ago, Jonathan Edwards, you may have read about him, one of the great theologians in North America back in the 1700s, wrote many great books. I'll never forget reading about the first sermon that Jonathan Edwards ever preached in his parish church in New England was a sermon on Christian happiness, and he had three points, God bless him. Three points. The first was, the good things that God gives you can never be taken away. All the good that God gives you can never be taken away. Secondly, even the bad things work for good. And thirdly, the best is yet to come. 
That is your, that is the Christian's happiness. That is a reason that you can take heart. God is sovereign. Everything good that he's given to me can never ultimately be taken away if they are from his hand. Secondly, even the bad things will work to good. And thirdly, the best is yet to come. But here and now, in the midst of life, we need to walk by faith. He is at work, but how? With David, I want to point out two ways that this is clear in the life of David. That David is truly trusting in the sovereignty of God. And God is even using it for good. Listen, God even uses the wrong decisions of others to help you grow. (laughs) I don't always like that, but it is absolutely true. God uses even the bad and sinful choices of other people to help you grow, to sanctify you. You may be in a season where other people in your lives are making bad decisions and they're affecting you. Well, rejoice, oh Christian, because that's a good opportunity for your sanctification. It's an opportunity for you to not respond or to react in in, in a sinful way. It's an opportunity for you to pray for those people who are making bad decisions. David was facing his own son, Absalom, whose treachery and treason is pushing him out of the kingdom And yet it was an opportunity to allow God to work on David. Henry Blackaby once put it like this. No experience, good or bad, is ever wasted. God doesn't squander people's time. He doesn't ignore their pain. He brings not only healing, but growth out of even the worst experiences. Every relationship can be God's instrument to mature a person's character. Even the bad decisions of others can be an opportunity for our growth as we learn to trust in God who is sovereign. But there's another way that this is clear in the life of David. And this one's a little bit harder for us to grasp. God even uses the consequences of our own bad choices to grow us. (laughs) Yes, brother, this is true. Let me just repeat that again. God even uses the consequences of our own bad choices to grow us. Now, let's think about David for a moment. Last week, we talked about David's great sin. He sinned with Bathsheba. But we also learned that when David's eyes were opened to his sin and he was confronted by his sin, what did David do? He repented. He repented. And what happened? What did God offer him? Forgiveness. God offered him forgiveness. Beautiful. And we talked last week about how God's forgiveness is sure, it is free, it is secure, it is immediate. That is beautiful. And yet, David would still, though he was forgiven, he would still face the consequences of his own choices. Let me just give you an example. Maybe if you're a husband here today, Maybe the way in which you have been uh, speaking to your wife or treating your wife is, is wrong. It is not honoring to her. It's just, it's just not right. And God is confronting you on it. Now, let's say God convicts you about that today, oh, husband. <laughs> and it just, just let that sit for a minute, husbands. And maybe today that you're struck to the heart and you're like, I need to repent of this. I'm not honoring my wife in the way that I ought. I'm sure that today, if you were to turn to your wife and say, Oh, wife, will you forgive me? I have no doubt that the wife today, because of Jesus Christ, will forgive you. Right, wives? 
<laughs> You're like, eh, yes, you will. Because of Christ, you will forgive him. And that is beautiful. However, there may still be consequences. The forgiveness that your wife offers you now may be immediate, it may be free, and it may be sure because it is founded on the forgiveness that is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, there may be still consequences that come. Trust needs to be built. We often say this in church counseling, forgiveness is free, but trust has to be built. You can forgive someone, but then it might take time to learn to trust them again. The consequences, the way, oh husband, that maybe you have spoken to your wife over this past year, the way that that has affected her doesn't simply disappear. You need to rebuild trust and that's going to take take time. That's just one of the consequences of your actions. Now David faced many consequences. We're told that because of David's sin, that in many ways the sword wouldn't leave his house, that there would be all kinds of consequences in his life. But listen, and there may be consequences in our own life because of bad choices, but listen, though these consequences feel at times like a contradiction of God's love, that is not the case. For consequences are not a contradiction of God's love, but rather an expression of God's love. How can that be so? How can that be so? Think about it like this. The consequences of your choices, not the same as the penalty of your sins. Jesus Christ took once and for all the penalty for your sins. Amen? That's the gospel. However, there still may be consequences that we deal with. And when we see those consequences, you know what those consequences do? They destroy the illusion that sin doesn't matter. They destroy the illusion that sin is not a big deal. And oftentimes God uses these consequences as his loving discipline. And his discipline is not punitive, it is purifying. There's a huge difference. Jesus Christ took the penalty for our sins. But often the consequences are allowed to exist so as to purify us. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 11 says. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In 2 Samuel 15, we read about David who knew he was forgiven, but he also knew that there was consequences to his actions and some of them he was dealing with in this chapter. But even in that place, David is just going to trust in God's sovereign care. And that is where you and I must be. We must surrender to him, knowing that he works all things together for good. Now, does this mean that you just do nothing and make no decisions at all whatsoever? No, because the third way we surrender is to act upon God's will. We must, as a part of surrendering to God, we must act on what we know to be true, act upon what we know to be faithful. Even if circumstances are hard, we must act on what we know to be God's will. And we see David exemplifying this in verses 27 through 29. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your son Ahimaaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and remained there. Listen, 
David, confronted with the reality of betrayal and mutiny at the hands of Absalom, is here presented with an option. See, when Zadok and the other priests, when they brought the ark to David, David had a choice. Think about it. If David had the ark of God, and the ark represented God's presence, David could have manipulated and swayed popular opinion towards himself. In other words, he could have said, hey, to all you would-be Absalom supporters, guess who's got the ark? Right here, King David. Who's got the ark? David. David's got the ark. Why don't we follow David? God's presence is with me. See, David could have done that. The ark was so powerful, people knew that it represented God's presence on the earth that David could have used that to his own advantage. But notice what he does. He makes a decision. He acts. In all of this, his trust is in God's sovereignty. He acts upon God's will, I think, in two ways. First of all, notice that he cares for the protection of the priests and the people. He says, no, I want you to go back to the city in peace with your sons. He's caring for them. He's saying, I care about your protection. As king, even though I'm being dethroned right now, I understand that one of my responsibilities is to make sure that you are okay. So he cares for the protection of the priests and the people, which is a very practical lesson for you and I. When we're just in the middle of a crazy season, what does surrender look like? Well, part of it entails you and I acting on what we already know to be true. We're told very clearly and plainly in Scripture that we are to look out for the needs of others and in as much as we can supply, we are to meet those needs, to bless them and to serve them. Our hearts should be ready to do this. David's heart was ready to act on what he knew to be true. But there's a second way in which David acts upon God's will. He refuses to play God. That's what's happening in this interchange. David is refusing to play God. See, time and time again, people use objects of worship, like the ark, to force God's hand, as it were, or to try to play God. And here's these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. They start following David out of the city, but David sends them back. And David shows them through his words that David's trust is in God, not merely in the ark which represented him. See, sometimes it's very easy for us to rely on like religious objects. Like I remember before I was a Christian, before I you know, believed in, in the gospel, at times when, when I got in trouble, like those times I almost got arrested for doing drugs, all that, another story for another time. But there were occasions like that where I thought, oh, if I just, you know, I would see a cross, I'm like, oh, the cross is in the room, you know, so that means everything's going to be okay. Or some people might carry around rosaries with them, like, hey, as long as I got this thing in my hand, everything's going to be okay. We have, as humanity, a tendency to trust in religious objects, and yet David refused to try or attempt any kind of manipulation. He puts his trust in God himself, not the ark that represented him. And David's decision to send it back into the city where it belonged was an incredible evidence of what David had learned. You know what David is saying here? He is saying, I'm not going to try to force God's hand. I want to know God's heart. And friends, I think that's one of the greatest lessons you and I can ever learn. Because so often we come to church or in our prayers or in community, we're trying to figure out a way to force God's hand. 
We see how the outcome could be favorable to us, and we're trying to do anything we can do to just try to, like, manipulate it. Oh, yeah, like, hey, God, I read my Bible, like, eight times today, so could you, like, give me the thing that I want? That would be really great. I went to church twice today. I went to two services. I even went to the prayer meeting they have for London on Sunday night. So can I get the thing that I want? See, sometimes our our attitude can be like that. But David is saying here, I'm not going to try to force God's hand. I want to know God's heart. I want to know God's heart. And I want to do his will. David shows incredible humility there. He says, God, if if it be God's will that he brings me back into the city, so be it. And yet, if it be God's will that I'm out here in the wilderness, so be it. I just want to trust in God's heart. It was a step of faith. David was trusting God to give the victory. Are you today, if you just pause for a moment, are you today trying to just manufacture or manipulate the outcome? Or are you today just trusting God with the victory that you need in your life? That is the place God wants to bring us. And David was ready to act upon what he knew was true about God. What he knew God's word had already spoken. David is prepared to act on this. And I think that's important to mention because some of us get confused when we think about this whole idea of surrender. Some of us, we hear surrender, like you just need to surrender to God. And you think, wait a minute, isn't that just some kind of fatalistic passivity? Like doesn't surrender mean I'm never going to do anything again? And Sometimes it is true that people can like spiritualize this. For some people, the word surrender is just their way of covering up or spiritualizing their laziness. Like, hey, what are you doing on the sofa all week? Surrendering. (laughs) Oh, maybe do something. Nope, just surrendering. Hey, come to church. Nope, just surrendering. Can you help me with the dishes? Nope, surrendering. Just surrender to God right now. Okay. Do not spiritualize your laziness when you know God has already told you to do something. And he's made it very clear. Don't just try to spiritualize, oh, I know I should be doing that, but I'm just in a state of surrender right now. Really? Could you actually surrender to God's will that says you should do this? Very important lesson. Surrender to God doesn't kill our decisions. It produces the right ones. Okay, surrenders. We're talking about surrender today. It doesn't mean that you don't make choices. Surrender means you learn to make the right ones. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Faith by itself... If it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's a statement. Now, James is not saying that works can save you, but that saving faith produces works. Faith is the soil from which right actions flow. We should, like David, act upon what we know to be faithful. Act upon what we know to be true. Act upon what God has revealed. To be obedient and then to leave the results with him. Now, for some of us, that's the hardest part. Leaving the results with God. We want to see to it from beginning to end. We want to make sure that we've got all of our bases covered. But we need to leave the results with God. See, friends, every day, like David did, In 2 Samuel 15, we have a daily choice. We can either pursue manipulative striving or we can choose faithful action. Manipulative striving is trying to play God. But faithful action flows from surrender to God. And it boils down to simply you and I saying this, God, I don't just want to see your hand, I want to know your heart. God, I don't want to force your hand. 
I want to know what your heart is. And that brings you to the fourth way in which we surrender, and that is to pray in God's way. We need to look for evidences of grace. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. We need to act upon his will. But lastly, and beautifully, in David's life, we see that you and I, if we're going to surrender our lives to God, we must pray in God's way. Did you notice it's super quick, but in verses 30 and 31, what does David do? David prays. He prays. It's, a, it's an honest, vulnerable, and simple prayer. And to be frank, that's what our prayer should be like. You know, sometimes when it comes to prayer, we do the very thing that Jesus forbid us to do, and that's cover up our prayer in all this like flowery language. You know, sometimes we even might find ourselves quoting old King James Bible. Oh, thou hast wrought. Everyone's like, really? <laughs> you know, sometimes we think like, oh man, I just crushed it in my prayer. Like God's definitely going to be like, wow. <laughs> I haven't heard a prayer like that since 1678, you know? So I will certainly answer your prayer. But you know what's interesting? Some of the most powerful prayers, what are they? They are simple, they are vulnerable, and they are honest. Last week, I don't know if you knew this, but the uh, children's ministry here at Reality Carpinteria had uh, the kids, I don't know what age, but had all these kids write down their prayers for London. God bless them these little Union Jack flags. And so I was taken up to the children's ministry area right there. They might still be up, so you should go sneak a peek. It's so amazing to see all these prayers. But my favorite prayer was just a little picture of London, and it just said, please help God. And I was like, yes. (laughs) I love that prayer. Three words. Three words. Please help God. Please help us, God. I mean, some of the most powerful prayers are, are not these, you know, like, super brainy, witty prayers. They're just simple. They're honest. They're vulnerable. And here, what we see in David is he is is a humbled man. And what is he doing? He's pouring out his heart to God in prayer. And that's what God is calling us to do. He prays such a simple prayer for his situation. Have you ever just, you know, been driving in your car and you're just like so stressed about a situation and you're just like, Lord, help me. I mean, that's essentially what, what David was, was doing here. He's like, Lord, in verse 31, confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. Just a simple prayer. Just falls on his knees and says, God, please. Now, what is David praying when he prays that prayer? Well, Ahithophel, other than having a great name, was also a political genius. And he was on the side of Absalom. Therefore, he would be a very powerful, you know, part of Absalom's arsenal in the rebellion against David. And so David, he knows that Ahithophel is genius. And so David prays that his genius would come to nothing. It's a simple prayer. And yet, you know what happens? I'm going to give you a little sneak peek at what happens if you read the rest of the chapter and the next chapter. This little prayer... When you're reading it, you might just think, oh, David prayed, and then you move on. And yet, here's what happens in the story. God answers that little prayer, and it becomes the turning point in David's life. It becomes a turning point for David to come back into the city. God answered that very simple prayer. And it was through God answering that prayer that God would confuse Ahithophel's advice. How? 
How did God confuse Ahithophel? By giving Ahithophel over to his pride. And as a result of Ahithophel's pride, he would make mistakes, and those mistakes would be key in David returning back to Jerusalem where he was to rule as a king under God. I don't know about you, but I think it is so amazing. I think it is so beautiful that we're recorded here in Scripture for us, a simple prayer of David. Lord, I don't know where else to go. What Absalom is doing is wrong. He's got Ahithophel with him. Lord, just confuse his counsel. Just confuse his counsel. And God answers the prayer. I don't know about you, but that brings incredible faith to my heart. And I say that because I think that there are requests on our heart right now that we might think are just too simple for God. Like, oh, God, you you don't really care about this thing. Oh, yes, he does. Oh, well, that request, you know, like we just, I think about just praying for my daughters to get into like the the school that God wants them at. Like, oh, but you don't know, I'm going to bring that prayer to God. What is on your heart today that you're not bringing to God? What is it that is on your heart today where you just might think, oh, you know, like God, God, he doesn't really care about those things. Oh, yes, he, oh, yes, he does. One of the things I love about prayer is you can discuss anything with God. In fact, I remember that being one of the most beautiful things that I noticed as a new Christian was the fact that I got to pray. I remember the morning after I got saved, I I went to this horribly cheesy Christian event when I was like 19 years old where they were doing like t-shirt cannon giveaways. I was like, oh my goodness, why did I come here? And they were doing like a drama and I was like, this is ridiculous. Why did I come? And yet, the preacher comes out, preaches the gospel. I'm bawling so hard that like snot is coming out of my nose that the follow-up counselors after the altar call, they didn't even know what to do with me. I'm like, Aah! and they're like, uh, read your Bible, go to church, pray. And it's like, oh, I'm saved. I was so excited that I slept in the gym of the church building that night in Northern California. I was like, God is here. I'm sleeping in the gym. And I remember waking up the first morning, there was this massive painting of Jesus. And I was like, I get to pray to you. It was like the most amazing thing. Like I get to talk to God. No matter where I am, no matter where I go, no matter what situation I'm in, I get to talk to God. And I hope that none of us ever lose just the wonder and awe that we get to pray. So whenever you're in doubt, just pray. Whenever you're in fear, pray. Whatever you have need of, just pray. Tell him about it. For in prayer, we do not suppress our burdens. We submit them to a God who cares for us. I love 1 Peter 5. Cast all of your cares upon him because why? He cares for you. I love that verse. I love that. Cast your cares upon him. Maybe today your prayer is this. Maybe today you don't feel like surrendering. You're like, yeah, I know I should, but I don't want to. Okay, pray that. Say, God, I don't feel like surrendering. Try it. (laughs) See what happens. Today, just whatever, God, I don't even feel like praying. Pray that. God, I don't feel like reconciling with that person. Pray that. God, I don't feel like worshiping. Pray that. Say, God, help me. Look at the power of prayer in David's life. A small little prayer. He just throws it up to heaven. God answers, and it happens to be the turning point for David coming back into the city. Amazing. See, the rebellion of Absalom would be broken as God answered that prayer. But to experience this freedom, you and I don't have to climb a mountain and you and I don't have to make a way because a way has already been made. A way has been made for us. 
to come to God and surrender to him. Because you see, hundreds of years after David, it was across the same brook Kidron that our King Jesus went. And it was up the same Mount of Olives that our King Jesus wept. But when Jesus wept on that day, he was not weeping for his own sin because he had no sin. He was weeping because he would bear our sin when he went to the cross. And the night before Jesus would go to a cross, he wrestled in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What did Jesus do? He surrendered perfectly and ultimately to his Father. And as he did, and as he went to the cross, he broke the power, not of Absalom, but of Satan and the power of the kingdom of darkness because Jesus Christ surrendered to his Father. That is what was accomplished through the cross. And it's through his atoning death that you and I can find healing. It is through Jesus Christ's present mediation right now. There is a human heartbeat at the right hand of the throne of God interceding and praying for you right now. That is an incredible idea. Jesus is praying for you right now. And through the promise that we have of his return, you and I find hope. So for those of you this morning who do not yet believe in Christ, and you're just fighting, you're like, oh, I've, been, I've heard the gospel and people have been sharing it with me. Maybe I've been coming to church. Today is the day to surrender. Today is the day to say, you know what? I'm not king. Jesus, you are king. Believe in him today. Stop going in your own way down a path of eternal destruction. Turn to him today and say, Jesus, you're a king. And for you, O oh Christian, listen, surrender is not a one-time thing. It is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. It's a daily thing. And this life of surrender, it will come with difficulties. But if indeed God is God, then it is the wisest decision that you could ever make. If God is the source of all that is good and true and beautiful and the power that we need, the wisest thing that you and I could ever do is surrender to him. See, God wants to work in us far beyond what we can comprehend. Every day, every moment, we must come to him as needy children. In full surrender is where we find the most freedom. And those moments that he encounters you, you either respond with a yes or a no. And church, we've gathered together on a Sunday morning, I hope, to encounter with God. Or even if you didn't hope that, that's what you're getting today. <laughs> An encounter with God. The question for you is, will you say yes to him or no to him? Yes. There's no neutrality. There's no gray area. Your response to God today and whatever he wants to do in your life, it's either a yes or it is a no. And the Spirit is calling you to simply say yes. Yes to him. See, the whole of our lives is to be a dependent response on the God who made us. That is what worship is. That's why we're, we lift our hands in worship. We are needy people. Some of you are like, I don't want to lift my hands because it, it makes me vulnerable. Guess what? You are vulnerable. So let's just all be vulnerable together. This room is the nest. <laughs> and we worship God and we lift our hands. We say, God, we need you. In our worship, we're not paying God back for what he has done. We're offering ourselves to him in light of what he has done. Worship for us is expressing our dependence, a giving of ourselves to him moment by moment. And I close with this example that I once heard Corey Ten Boom use. 
She said, your life, your Christian life can either be like a car going to a gas station and getting fueled up, or it can be like an electric train that runs on a third rail. See, most of us, we're like the car. We go on a Sunday, we go to the gas station, we're like, yeah, I'm going to get filled up. And then we depart from him. And then we just run on those fumes until it's almost empty and we're like, man, I kind of need to go back to God again. Listen, let's be honest. That's how many of us are. We're like, oh, I'm going to get filled up and then I'm going to like kind of go do my own thing for a while. Oh, I'm going to come back to God. I'm going to go do my own thing. No, my friend, we are to be like that electric train that runs on a third rail, always connected to the rails so that we always have power because that life that we need, the power we need, it comes from God. We need to be close and connected to the source and that is what God is calling us to as he calls us to surrender because in God's economy, the way of victory is actually the way of surrender. William Booth once said that the greatness of man's power is the measure of his surrender. So will it be a yes or will it be a no? If God is truly the source of all that you need of power, strength, guidance, and comfort, then the greatest thing you and I could do right now is surrender to him. Let's do that. Father, I ask right now for your spirit to melt our hearts, to overcome any resistance that there may be within us, that our response to you today would not be no, that our response to you today would be yes. Even if that way and path of surrender entails difficulties, Grant us the grace, God, right now just to say yes to you. Father, it may be that there are some in this room just struggling with trusting you, trusting in your sovereignty, knowing the Bible says you are sovereign, but just maybe in their own heart, they just have a hard time believing it. Holy Spirit, would you minister to those hearts right now? That they would just simply say like David, hey, if God wills, that's what I want. May we just rest in your sovereignty. Lord, maybe some of us are putting off decisions we know we need to make. May your spirit just right now call us to action, to Holy Spirit action right now. And Lord, to those burdens that we have in our heart that we just haven't brought to you in prayer, may we bring them to you right now. May we not hold back. But may we come to you in dependence. Holy Spirit, would you lead us to a place of surrender? where we might experience true victory. We ask in Jesus' name.